0: Hello, and welcome to The Board Table, a podcast from the North Carolina School Boards Association. I'm Leanne Winner, the association's executive director and your host. Here on The Board Table, we want to equip North Carolina School Board members with the tools and knowledge they need to govern successfully. We also want to help school administrators, community members, and parents learn more about current issues in public education. In this episode of The Board Table, I am joined by Christine Sheaf, NCSBA's legal counsel and director of policy, to discuss some recent and very interesting developments in the Leandro case. In order to fully understand these developments, we will also briefly review the history of the case, which is now in its 28th year. Christine, thank you for joining me today to talk for a bit about the Leandro case and to help walk our listeners through what has happened recently. Before we briefly review the history of the case, can you share just a bit about what occurred last week?
1: Sure. So last week, there were two things that happened. The Supreme Court granted petitions filed by the state and the Leandra plaintiffs. The petitions asked the court to review an order that had been entered by the trial court in November of 2021. The petitions were somewhat unusual in that they sought review by the Supreme Court prior to the Court of Appeals reviewing that decision. That's the normal process is the Court of Appeals gets the first crack, and then the Supreme Court would review the decision after that. But in this case, the Leandro plaintiffs in the state asked the Supreme Court to go first or to go ahead and take the case without the Court of Appeals weighing in. The other thing that happened is that Chief Justice Newby removed Judge David Lee from the Leandro case and appointed Judge Michael Robinson, who has been a business court judge in Winston-Salem, to oversee the case going forward.
0: Great. Um, So let's get started with um, some context. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with the long history of the case, but we're going to begin by reviewing the timeline and some key points in the case just to make sure that everybody is on the same page. So the case was filed in 1994, so approximately 28 years ago. Um, we're getting close to three decades now. Um, so there have been two major Supreme Court decisions, Leandro One and Leandro II. 1997 um, was when Leandro, the Leandro I opinion was issued. Can you tell us a little bit about what that opinion said?
1: This was the opinion that held for the first time that the state constitution guarantees every child of this state the right to the opportunity to receive a sound basic education. And the opinion also set forth the elements of a sound basic education, what those things would look
0: like. Okay, great. And we talk about that a lot um, in education circles still today. And I do think it's really important to stress that it's um, an opportunity. And a lot of times you will see folks um, drop that word out, but that's a really um, important word um, in that decision. So let's talk about the Leandro II opinion now. That was um, handed down in 2004. Um, So share with us a little bit about what that opinion did.
1: I'll spend a little bit longer on that opinion because it sets the stage for where we are now. So the 1997 case, all it did was establish that the state constitution provided the right in question. It did not address whether or not that right had been violated. The 2004 opinion addresses that issue. So in the opinion, the court affirmed, upheld the trial court's ruling, that the state had failed in its constitutional duty to provide certain students with a sound basic education. And it affirmed that ruling that the state must act to correct the the deficiencies. However, as to the remedy, I'm going to read a very long quote from the opinion here, but I think it's important. The opinion specifically noted that when the state fails to live up to its constitutional duties, a court is empowered to order the deficiency remedied And if the offending branch of government or its agents either fail to do so or have consistently shown an inability to do so, a court is empowered to provide relief by imposing a specific remedy and instructing the recalcitrant state actors to implement it. However, the opinion also goes on to say that while the quote, court, quote, remains the ultimate arbiters of our state's constitution and vigorously attends to our duty of protecting the citizenry from abridgments and infringements of its provisions, we simultaneously recognize our limitations in providing specific remedies for violations by other government branches in services to, in service to a subject matter, such as public school education, that is within their primary domain. Thus, we conclude that the trial court erred when it imposed at this, ju- at this juncture of the litigation and on this record, the requirement that the state must provide pre-kindergarten classes for all at-risk prospective enrollees in Hoke County. In our view, based on the evidence presented at trial, such a remedy is premature and its strict enforcement could undermine the state's ability to meet its educational obligations for at-risk prospective enrollees by alternative means. And so I read all of that because I want to make clear um, that that tension that we have seen over the last year or so between the legislature, which is charged with remedying the conditions that violated a student's rights to the opportunity to receive a sound basic education and the courts, which of course have to observe the separation of powers while also enforcing remedies for constitutional violations, uh, that that was noted all the way back in 2004. And of course, that's a tension that has existed for as long as um, our our state constitution has existed. Uh, We'll come back to that when we get into some of the more recent actions in the case, but that's an important thing to keep in mind is that back in 2004, within the context of this case, the Supreme Court recognized that, that that tension existed.
0: So let's fast forward a little bit to 2016. Obviously, there were um, lots of hearings that Judge Manning held during that time um, and lots of discussions between the courts and um, the state. But in 2006, Judge Manning, um, who had handled this case um, from the very beginning, um, stepped down and fully retired and Judge David Lee. Um, was appointed by the Supreme Court to take over the case. Right. And so then in 2018, um, WestEd was appointed by the trial court under um, Judge Lee to lead an investigation into the needs of the public school system. They took a little over about a year and a half, a little more than a year and a half, um, and they released an action report, um, which including appendices was over 300 pages long. So that was December of 2019. Um, In January of 2020, Judge Lee signed a consent order directing the state defendants in consultation with each other and the plaintiff parties to develop and present to the court a comprehensive remedial plan. So in June of 2021, Judge Lee ordered that the a comprehensive remedial plan be implemented. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that plan?
1: So the plan went through and it created, um, it was based on the information that West Ed had put together in their investigation, the report that West Ed released, talk about the very talked about the various areas of the public education system that the state could improve upon. And so when the comprehensive remedial plan was put together and the funding for the comprehensive remedial plan was put together, it relied heavily on the information that the West Ed plan had or West Ed report had included. So there was funding for teachers. There was funding for principals. There was funding for upgrades to the finance system. There was funding for an assistance and turnaround function for low-performing schools and districts, funding for early education, and then funding for alignment of high school to post-secondary and career expectations. Those were the broad categories that the funding buckets fell into. So overall, in recurring funding, the plan totaled just over $5.5 trillion dollars. Um, a very That's big a number, big of number. course. Yes. And that was by fiscal 2020, fiscal year 2028. Um, the cost to fully implement the plan in 2122 was 609 million, 691 million, excuse me. And in 2023, it was 1.1 billion. So that was the cost in the remedial plan. Um, and so of course during this period, the General Assembly was developing the budget. And Leanne, what what
0: was happening in this during the session as this was all going so, on? So, as you all might recall, that um, the 2021 um, session actually didn't conclude until 2022, but they did pass a budget um, in the early fall, which was the first full budget um, North Carolina had passed in um, three years. Um, So we had been working off of of some very old budgets with with some adjustments. So this was the first full budget um, that the General Assembly had passed in quite a while. Um, But it did become clear um, during the session that the General Assembly... what they were proposing and ultimately passed um, was not going to fully fund um, what Judge Lee had um, ordered for the plan for both the 21-22 school year and the 22-23 school year. Because remember, the the budget that was passed is the two-year budget because we're at the beginning of the biennium.
1: Right. So um, as you said, they did pass a budget, but they did not pass a budget before Judge Lee entered his order. So Judge Lee entered an order in November, uh, I believe it was the 10th. He entered an order and in that order, and I I wanna say he held several hearings during the late summer and the fall to talk about this. The plaintiffs were pressing very hard for Judge Lee to enter an order. um, And he, you know, several times would say that he wanted to give the General Assembly time to act and he wanted to see what budget was being put together. The um, representative of the attorney gen- from the attorney general's office, who was in these hearings, was letting B- Judge Lee know that he felt the parties were getting close, and so um, I think when Judge Lee's order came out, at that point we were very close to a budget being passed. And it was clear, as Leanne said, that it was not going to fully fund the plan. So in early November 2021, Judge Lee entered his order, and his order is, is very long. If you Google the Leandro order from November 2020, you can read it. 2021, he recounts some of the history of the case, what's been going on. Um, but, but what he ultimately concluded is that the constitutional violations that were identified in the first two Leandro, the two major Leandro decisions, that they are on. Ongoing and that persist to this day. He concluded: quote, the General Assembly, despite having a duty to participate in guarding and maintaining the right to an opportunity for a sound basic education, has failed to fulfill that duty, end quote. He also quoted that section of Leandro II that I previously mentioned, the section that states that a court has the authority to order a specific remedy if the state fails to live up to its constitutional duties. And in his order, um, Judge Lee did acknowledge that the North Carolina Constitution grants authorities over appropriations of state funds to the General Assembly. The General Assembly has that authority. But he also concluded that Article 1, Section 15 of the Constitution represents a constitutional appropriation. Such an, And he said, quote, such an appropriation may be considered to have been made by the people themselves through the Constitution, thereby allowing fiscal resources to be drawn from the state treasury to meet that requirement. And so the end result of his order was that $1.7 billion be drawn from the state treasury um, in order to fund those two years of the Leandro Comprehensive Plan. So... We'll let you, Leanne, pick up with what happened next.
0: So, shortly after the budget passed, um, the state controller ended up um, filing a petition with the Court of Appeals seeking to stay and ultimately overturn Judge Lee's order. Um, The state controller is the one who ultimately is in charge of um, helping disseminate the money. Um, And so, so that position does play a a role. Also, the state appealed the order, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Um, So let's talk now about what happened after that with the Court of Appeals.
1: So the state controller filed the petition, and then shortly after her petition was filed, the Court of Appeals issued a writ of prohibition, which effectively overturned the trial court's order. It was not a final decision by the Court of Appeals, but it halted Judge Lee's order. And just to be clear, all of those things, so the trial court issuing its order, the controller filing the petition, and the Court of Appeals issuing its writ, all of that happened within three weeks. So after all these years, everything started moving
0: very quickly. So so let's fast forward to February now. Okay. Um, And the state filed with the state Supreme Court a petition for discretionary review prior to the determination by the Court of Appeals. So tell us a little bit more about that and that process.
1: So remember the state, I said that the state had appealed Judge Lee's order in the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals and issued a decision, but it was not a final order. So the typical process is the Court of Appeals issues a final order. And then if the parties so choose, they can appeal to the Supreme Court. There are certain cases the Supreme Court has to hear. There are certain cases that where the parties file a petition for discretionary review, and it's up to the Supreme Court to decide. Um, but that's the normal process with some exceptions. But generally speaking, you know, a case is appealed first to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals rules, and then it's appealed to the Supreme Court. What the state did was they said, We don't want to wait for the Court of Appeals to issue a final decision. I think everybody knows at this point that the Supreme Court is going to be the final word on this. They're going to hear this case. They're going to decide it. And so the state said, let's just get this in front of the Supreme Court and let the Supreme Court do that. And it also asked the Supreme Court to set an expedited schedule. Um, In response to the state's request, the plaintiffs also asked the Supreme Court to go ahead to to bypass the Court of Appeals and take up the case. But we
0: have legislative leaders. Right. And then we have Senator Berger, um, who's head of the Senate, and Speaker Moore um, intervened. Um, And I'm not sure we've actually seen them intervene in this case um, prior to, to now, I, I, can't, so. I can't recall a time, um, but they intervened and they filed their own petition um, and they actually asked the Supreme Court not to take the case and arguing that the passage of the budget had rendered the trial court's order moot and um, So I think that catches us up now to to where we are. We've got some interesting players that have come into the case um, in recent times, recent in terms of 23 years that we haven't seen being part of it before. But so um, that brings us up to last week. So um, let's talk about the two things um, a little bit more in detail that happened last week. So first, let's start with the Supreme Court.
1: So. The Supreme Court order, you know, as I, we started with, they granted the petitions. Um, but there was a caveat in terms of the expedited order, in, in terms of the request for an expedited case, that's where the Supreme Court remanded the case. They sent it back to the trial court, instructing the trial court to take a look at the order that was issued in November of 2021. Again, that order was issued before the budget was passed. So what the Supreme Court asked the trial court to do was to take a look decide whether or not the order need to be needed to be amended in any way in light of the budget that was passed. And the trial court was given 30 days to do so. So we should see some activity, you know, by um I believe the date that the court acted was the 21st. And so we should see some activity on that, you know, by by late April. Um, so in theory, the court has rejected the claim by Senator Berger and Speaker Moore that the case is moot because the budget was passed because they agreed to hear the petitions. But the trial court could also amend its order to find that it's moot because of the budget's passage. We don't know what will happen. Um, so that's that's one thing to keep an eye on to see what will happen. And then, of course, we have some questions uh, that, that some folks have raised questions about why Justice Newby removed Judge Lee from the case. And there was some information. Um, we don't have any inside information about that, but we have right. seen media reports and there was some information that was provided by WREL. So, Leanne, if you want to talk a little bit about what REL has reported. Yeah.
0: So, um, WRAL reported that um, Judge Lee did not ask to be removed from the case. Um, They actually um, did some interviewing with him. We'll talk in a second a little bit more about um, some of what he said. Um, A spokesman, though, for um, Chief Justice Newby stated that Judge Lee was removed from the case because he had reached the mandatory retirement age of 72. Um, He turned 72 on January 23rd. Now, when you become, reach that mandatory retirement age, you can choose to become an emergency judge if you want to. However, um, Judge Lee had already made that election back in 2016. Um, So he's been in, he essentially retired in 2016 and became an emergency judge um, at that point. Um, He was currently overseeing three cases and he was taken off of this one. Um, I think he said it is unclear on one of the other cases what's going to happen, but that he is maintaining um, the third one. Um, So that's kind of interesting. Um, they also interviewed former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr, who wrote the sorry, 2004 Leandro II decision and that he stated he was not necessarily surprised that Judge, that Judge Lee's age had become an issue although that he was not aware of any judge being removed from a case simply because he had reached the mandatory retirement age of 72. Um, He also said that a case as complicated as the Leandro case would typically have a transition period during which the two judges, and in this case, that would be Judge Lee and Judge Robinson, would talk about the case and get the new judge up to speed. Um, As part of this story that they put out, um, Judge Lee said that he did not know Judge Robinson would be taking over the case and had not discussed the case with him. Um, So we just want to emphasize that this is all media reporting um, that we are just sharing with you. It is um, not any speculation on our part um, as an organization, but just thought that that was a, some um, interesting coverage that had happened. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about Judge Robinson and, and where he is at the moment in the case?
1: Oh, sure. Um you know, Judge Robinson obviously is, is going to get up to speed quickly given the 30-day timeline to determine that he has from the Supreme Court to determine whether the November 2021 order needs to be amended. We do know that he held his first status hearing with the parties on Thursday, and we are now back to waiting, which we have done a lot of in this case given his age. Um, as I said earlier, he has until April 20th to determine whether the November 2021 order needs to be amended, and then we will see where we go from there. And I think what we can, we don't know what the outcome can be, but I can promise that it will be an interesting thing to watch and keep an eye on over the next, uh, who knows how long. Right. It's, it's, there's a lot of unknowns at this point. So I think that's, that's where we probably feels like the best place to leave
0: it. Christine, thank you for joining me today. And I'm sure that in the not too distant future, we will be having another special episode of the board table um, to update everybody on what ultimately happens um, around this 30 day time period and what Judge Robinson says at the end of that and where the case will go from there. So thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Have you ever heard the saying, if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu? Subscribe to this podcast to make sure you always have a seat at the table. If there's a topic you want us to cover in a future episode of The Board Table, let us know. You can find us on Twitter at NCSBA, Facebook at NC School Boards Association, or email us at info at NCSBA.org. Until next time.